guys, welcome to the Beautiful Boxing Podcast. As always, your support, your love, your messages, your comments, your feedback, always appreciated. Really in this episode, I've had a, about five days to reflect on what happened on Saturday when Dillian unfortunately lost to Povetkin. And let's say unfortunately because whether you're pro-Dillian or not, you have to understand that these are fights he didn't need to take. He could have fought another version of Marius Vac. He could have fought a De Harpus or someone like that. But he's chosen to, to mix it up a bit. And he, he came up short. And we should also accept that this version of Dillian that we saw prior to the stoppage was a pretty good vintage of Dillian. Controlled, disciplined and so forth. One that would have given a lot of decent heavyweights trouble. Might, might have even given Joshua trouble. If, you know, if that version of Joshua fought the version of Joshua that fought in Ruiz too, I think he gives them all kinds of trouble. I think this version of Dillian would give Joseph Parker even more trouble. Maybe that fight doesn't go the distance. Maybe Rivas, you know I mean, gets stopped early on. I don't know. But I think this was an improved version of Dillian. But when you look at that defeat, I can't talk about what happened in the fifth round because I know commentators love to simplify things and they love to tell you the fight's lost in that moment. But when you've been around guys, when you've been around boxers for long enough, what you actually understand is the seeds for success and failure are sown long before the fight. They're sown long before the training camp. And so the convenient narrative for a boxing fan is here you have two ex-kickboxers, one went on to the Olympics, one dirt-tracked it, and now they meet in the same place to decide who fights Tyson Fury. It's a convenient reductionist na narrative for boxing fans who really just want stories now. That seems to be where the world is headed. But there's a more considered view you have to take. And you have to ask yourself, when the bell went on Saturday, what did you have in each respective corner? And therefore, what was each fighter able to call upon in that fight? I'd always had a suspicion that A, it was Dillian's fight to lose. But B, Povetkin would want to exploit the stamina issues that Dillian was notorious for. And maybe that explains why Povetkin stayed supremely calm having been put down. And carried on, he stuck to his plan of wanting to work that left hook. And then, you know, he modified it into a left uppercut. And boom, that's how the fight ended. But what you saw on Saturday night was everything that's right and everything that's wrong with boxing. And it, it will take some getting into. There's nothing really tactical I need to explain about Saturday night, really, is there? Povetkin did one of the more basic things. If you ask any, anyone who's been involved in boxing over 50, what Povetkin did was pretty basic. But for the, the new Jacks, that was revolutionary. I know no one had really seen that before because we don't teach those things. And I know Wayne Smith, who, who's actually a good trainer, to be fair, and he's had a lot of success with his St. Mary's guys. Wayne Smith and I got into it a bit on Twitter because you know, he was trying to convince me that you know, he trains the left uppercut in his fighters. And I'm like, you may get them to throw it, but your fighters don't execute it in a fight. So for me, if you can't do it in a fight, you can't really do it. That's generally my test for whether you have something in your arsenal. But it's overall it's just really interesting because in Dillian White and Alexander Povetkin, you have 
the most extreme contrast that explain a lot of why British fighters do not get very far once they hit world level. Why they get pumped up to a certain level and they collapse. And I think once you tune into this, and I think every boxer should listen to this episode, they should take this in because this is really important. These are lessons that are never shared with boxers. And as a result, boxers never get the careers they deserve in this country. So the best place to start, I think, when you analyse a fight like this and the issues it kicks up, is to look at the childhood. Now, it's not easy to find out the respective childhoods around both fighters, but from, from what I've picked up from either the media or talking to Team Povetkin, is that Alexander Povetkin has been involved in some form of combat since he was a child, a really young child. Growing up, I think it's Kursk, where they keep the Russian nuclear fleet in the north of the Soviet Union. So you're already from a country that's known for toughness. And you get involved in karate, you get involved in kung fu, you get involved in wushu, you get involved in boxing from a young age. Let's not forget that. And you get involved in all of these combat styles that have all this different these different flavors, I should say. So you've got the Kung Fu with its hand-to-hand, being able to feel your opponent in real time. And the whole tenet of Kung Fu is do not let go of your opponent until you've subdued your opponent. So it's that ability to use your forearms to feel where the energy is, to feel what the next move is. All these small things. It's Wushu, that, that ability to, to remain loose and calm and flexible and adaptable. You're looking at the kickboxing that he became known for, which was your point-fighting style. And then the boxing, obviously, so you're imbued with the fundamentals of the sport from a young age. Now, that breadth of skill means Povetkin can see one of those individual arts through a number of different perspectives. So he has more tools to solve problems with than someone who's just grown up boxing, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It just leaves you pretty limited. And you see that with Povetkin's style where it's hard to read because he uses different elements and you can see the different elements he uses. But the important thing is this. He's had structured combat training from when he was young. And so what that does is it trains the pathways and the patterns and you're you're basically raised a fighter. Your body adapts to that environment. I think they call it adaptive physiology. It's the whole principle of your body will become the thing that you are. So if you look at these kids who are on farms, um, I think Hannah Rankin confirmed this one when we spoke a couple of years ago. If you grow up on a farm lifting stuff and throwing stuff from when you're a kid, you develop a natural level of strength. It may not be visible, so it may not be bulging muscles, but what it is, you're stronger than a kid that didn't do that. And anyone who's ever played sport against a farmer will tell you, they're not gym strong, but you can't move them around. And when they grab you, you feel the force. And so Povetkin builds up these patterns and these strengths and little advantages in childhood that he's then able to leverage into a kickboxing career. And that's important because now you know what it's like to be elite at something. Because he was like world junior champion. And, you know, I know people say, ah, kickboxing, kickboxing this. But look, winning is winning. And being classed as elite is being classed as elite. So by the time Povetkin's gone into the Russian amateur boxing system with the aim of representing them in the Olympics, he's already a damn good fighter. So that convenient narrative of these guys were both kickboxers is actually a fallacy because Dillian had none of that. 
dealing by his own admission, was just out in the streets fighting and doing this and doing that. And that gives you toughness and it gives you resilience and it gives you these intangible benefits. But what it doesn't give you, which Povetkin had, is structured, programmed combat training. Now, I'd even speculate Povetkin did other things, maybe basketball, maybe this, maybe that. But all of these things gave him that advantage in childhood. The benefits of which he's reaping now, at 40. And the reason he's reaping that now is he doesn't have to learn anything. Povetkin's camps now are just about adapting to the challenge. You're not learning anything. You know, he could, he could do six-week camps, like the old-timers did. This is what people forget. The old-timers didn't have 12-week camps because when you look at guys like Joe Frazier, Joe, Joe Frazier grew up in a sharecropping community. I'm sure Foreman grew up in something equally manual. Like, the, the exception to that's Ali, but he was just a freak anyway. But generally, a lot of the fighters we look at as being great came from a manual labor background in childhood, and that gave them toughness physically and mentally. And that's why they could go on longer. That's why they could have the wars they had because in childhood, these things were woven into their very existence. And we don't have that in the United Kingdom anymore. So already you see the advantage in childhood that Povetkin's able to reap. He's able to tap into that experience and know that his body knows what to do. It doesn't have to think about it. Whereas Dillian has to be programmed because he came into the sport relatively late. This isn't saying, oh, you know, this makes Dillian shit. It makes, in, in fact, it makes what Dillian's achieved incredible when you now see the head start some of these other guys have had over him. What he's ab able to achieve by being just bloody-minded and resilient and tough is actually really impressive. So now start to look at all your other Eastern European fighters, Lomachenko all that Russian dancing, gymnastics, all this other stuff he's done. On top of the boxing. Same with Usyk. I remember speaking to Isaac Chamberlain. And Isaac found it really interesting that, as a warm-up, the Ukrainians would just play basketball. Or if they had an active recovery day, they'd play basketball or they'd do some other form of sport. Which for him is alien, because Isaac's what they call like a monoline boxer. All he's ever wanted to do is box. And so he boxes. So that was eye-opening for him. But it's not unusual when you talk to Eastern Europeans of any culture because their principle is a good athlete will make a good sportsman. And so you become a good athlete first. And that's the advantage Povetkin had over Dillian White. Povetkin was already a good athlete. Before he took boxing super seriously, he was a good athlete. Dillian's still trying to embrace that concept of being a good athlete. And you can see that in the footwork. And you can see that in the fact that it takes a five-month camp to be ready for Povetkin, who I imagine probably did about between six to eight weeks to get ready for this fight, knowing that he'd built the base and the foundations a lot sooner in his life. So, okay, you don't have the childhood Povetkin, Povetkin had. You don't, you don't have that depth of sporting background between the ages of eight and 15 or whatever. You don't have that, right? How can you make up the gap? How can you make up time on this? You'd think good coaching, right? Well, that's what I would think. I'd think, okay, cool. I didn't get the childhood, but now I'm here. Now I'm here training. Now I need good coaching, good training, a good education. And I always say the aim of a good coach, and 
boxers are trainers, um, boxing coaches are trainers and there are teachers, but ultimately you're a coach in the same way that you can be a beat maker or you can be a guitar player and you can be a producer. The producer is really the role. Like the coach is the guy that makes sure everything comes together. The coach is accountable for everything. The trainer is accountable for some aspects. You being a teacher, you're accountable for other aspects, but it's the coach that has to bring this all together. So I'm going to use coach in this case. What you're trying to do as a coach is make your fight of boxing literate. Boxing is essentially just a language. It's one of many combat languages that exist. There's Kung Fu, there's Muay Thai, there's Taekwondo. Look, there's amateur boxing, there's pro boxing, there's bare knuckle boxing. There's Krav Maga, there's MMA. There's, there's all these different languages. That's all they are, it's the languages. It's the same principle. Hurt your opponent before they get a chance to hurt you. That's all. Now, it shouldn't be that hard to make someone literate in something as simple as boxing. It's just two hands, right? But now roll down your list of top 10 British boxers. How many of them do you think really understand what they're doing? And how many of them are just corner to corner, guys? Get their instructions, go back out. Get their instructions, go out again. Get their instructions, go out again. Because you notice how you rarely hear British boxers give feedback. They never sit in the corner and go, look, this is what I'm seeing in the ring. And it's rare that a trainer says, what are you seeing in the ring? Because they know their guys don't have the literacy to express what they're seeing in the ring. So now as a coach, I have to then represent that. I have to give my view. So it's only really one brain working. Whereas if you see at the top level, like Floyd Mayweather was a prime example of this, he'd tell you, go, nah, he's just got a jab. He's not that strong. Nah, I'm going to take that jab away from him. And then whoever's in the corner, whether it's Roger or Floyd Sr., could say, okay, here's how you do that. Okay? Mind you don't do this because he might be setting you up for that. No one in Dillian's corner seemed to say, he's throwing an awful lot of left hooks to the body. Maybe he's setting you up for something. Maybe you want to just be careful of those. Maybe you want to take that away from him. Maybe you want to put him in a position where that left hook is now harder to throw. I don't remember hearing that in the corner. So that tells me no one in the corner is boxing literate. They may know boxing. And look, in Britain, everyone knows boxing. We have so much information thrown at us. Our knowledge base is incredible. There isn't a trainer I know in boxing that doesn't have knowledge. There isn't. Like, even if I don't rate you as a trainer, I'll rate your knowledge. These guys all have knowledge. What they don't have, in a lot of cases, is that literacy to go, okay, I'm watching this in real time. Let me connect the dots. Because I have a deep reservoir of knowledge about these situations. Weirdly enough, the Americans seem to do that pretty easily. So, my question then becomes, if the corner was that chaotic, what was being shared in camp? What was actually happening in camp? Because yes, you can have all the spreadsheets in the world, and you can do all the hill sprints in the world, and you can do all the sparring in the world. At some point, someone has to knit this all together and say, this is what you're trying to achieve in that ring. This is why you're doing it. This is how I think we should do it. What do you think? You know your body better than anyone else. 
you know your mind better than anyone else. What do you think? Okay, I think this. Okay, if we incorporate that, this is what it looks like now. Do you think you can do that? Yeah, I do. Let's crack on with it. For me, that's what a camp should be like right at the beginning. And then all you're doing is you just work into that plan. But just from the little bits I'm hearing here, there and everywhere, it wasn't like that. And that would worry me. So you've got to contrast this with Alexander Povetkin and the Soviet system, which will teach you how to throw punches. It will teach you how to throw combinations. It will teach you how to move. But it wraps this up in this wider philosophical framework of what you're trying to achieve in boxing. And it's not as simple as, oh, hit and don't get hit. But it will explain to you why you throw this punch. Why do you throw the double? Why do you, why do you slip and throw the hook? Why do you roll under and throw the right hand? And it will teach you all of these things. So when you are doing these drills, and these drills are mind-numbing, these drills are painful, but when you're doing these drills, you understand exactly why you're doing them. And in the process of doing them, you make them your own. And that's why when I hear people go, ah, he's just got that standard Eastern European style. But you look at these guys, and they're pretty different. So I imagine Kovalev and Golovkin are probably from the same school of, of hard knocks, same boxing philosophy pretty much, but it's, it's expressed so differently in those guys because when I teach you the overall framework and I teach you the techniques and I teach you the fundamentals and I teach them in such depth and you embrace all of this, you can then go, well, my arms are too short to be a long-range boxer, but I've learned how to get inside and work. I've got all of those tools. I'm going to bring that together. So this boxing literacy that seems to happen in Eastern European fighters is brilliant because once you understand the philosophy of boxing, and it's universal, it's not just a Russian version or a Cuban version or an American version, it's universal. The Brits don't get it, but it's universal. Once you get this, you can train with anyone because you've mastered all the components and you're just learning how to put them together to embrace the language or the dialect that this coach now has right that's what we don't have in this country we do not have a boxing education framework people say oh you go to gb you learn this you go to gb and you do you do what you're told and you can tell that because the guys that come out aren't exactly boxing brains no disrespect to them they're all talented in the ring but they're not guys that are going to be able to break down a fight or break things down to you that's why we struggle for really good pundits on Sky. Because a lot of these guys were just told what to do. And they figured some of it out over time and now they're starting to learn a bit more. But generally speaking, they're not that boxing literate. And that's why guys like Roy Jones, Andre Ward, Tim Bradley run rings around them. Because the American system is all about education. Being a smart fighter, that's what Floyd means. Being a smart fighter, understanding why you're doing what you're doing. Because if you don't understand why you're doing what you're doing, you'll never get the most out of it. And I say this until I'm blue in the face and no one chooses to listen. We have a crisis of coaching in British boxing because anyone with a set of pads and an Instagram account can go and get three or four trainers, uh, fighters, sorry. Anybody. You build up a bit of a buzz, you come up under this, this trainer, you come up in this gym and all of a sudden you go off on your own and you're just hoovering up fighters because they just see stuff on Instagram. And this shows you how uneducated boxers are. I rarely ever see a fighter look at their trainer and go, are you giving me what I need? Are you preparing me today for my 50th fight? Or are you preparing me today for my first fight? 
a good coach is preparing you for your 50th fight on your first day in the gym. A great coach is preparing you for your 50th fight the first day you lace on a pair of gloves. That's what my belief has always been this. When someone walks through and says, look, I want to get into Team GB, then I'm kind of done with boxing. I'm preparing you on day one for that last fight. Hopefully it's a gold medal fight, but we're preparing for that. We're preparing at that level. If you tell me, look, I want to have a few fights, get to about 10 and 0, move on. We'll prepare at that level. We might prepare a bit more just to guarantee it, but I'm not going to prepare you for a 50 fight career. You don't need to go to that journey. You don't need to put your body through that. It's not a worthwhile investment of your time. Trainers don't do this. You walk into a gym, you do as you're told. If you don't do as you're told, get out of my gym. Get out. That's what happens. That's why I really respect guys like Eddie Lamb. Eddie Lamb's one of my favorite people in boxing. A, he's a really nice guy. B, he really knows the sport. But C, most importantly, Ed's always thinking long term. When you talk to Ed about like you know, how so-and-so training today, Ed will always give you a view on, you know, we're thinking about three or four years when he fights for a British. And I like that about Eddie Lamb. Why more boxers don't go to Eddie Lamb and say, look, can you train me? I don't know. Like Eddie Lamb could comfortably train a, a guy like Josh Kelly, could comfortably train a guy like Chris Congo to European and world level. I'm confident of that. The problem you have is... People get seduced by who Adam Smith, Matt Macklin, and so forth tell you is a good trainer. I could tell you who's a good trainer who's not a good trainer. For one, for a start, I'll tell you who a hell of a trainer is who doesn't get any credit. Richard Towers. Because everything I've just said to you now, that's Richard Towers. Richard Towers will give you the full philosophy, the spirituality, everything. He will wrap that beautifully around boxing. Then he'll tell you this is why you're doing what you're doing. You will never be lost in boxing with Richard Towers. So I've got a lot of time for him. And that's come from like real deep conversations. Like he's drawn on everyone. He drew on Emmanuel Stewart. He drew on what he saw with Vladimir. He drew on Adam Booth. He drew on Brendan Ingle. And like, especially with Brendan Ingle, there's a guy who had that evangelical view on how boxing should be. So once you're within that framework, you understand it. I think it's been overplayed now. I think anyone with an association to Brendan Ingle, as a, who's now training, is expected to have these flashy fighters with this mythical Ingle style, which we haven't seen probably since. It's Kid Galahad's a version of it, but a really watered-down version. So we haven't really seen that version of it since Ryan Rhodes, if I'm being honest with you. Time Booth had it, but he was not really at world level. But essentially, that's what I'm saying. We don't really teach and educate our boxers in a way that means they can have long careers. Because we want our boxers to be dependent on us as trainers so we can always get that 10%. That's the problem. So we don't, we don't equip them to be good wherever they go. I do. I'll train you. I don't care if you stick around with me. Yeah? I, I, I like to feel I'm going to educate you so well. There's nowhere where you're going to go where you're going to learn more. That's my belief. And I don't think I've been proved wrong yet. And I don't believe I will be proved wrong. Because I, I learned the hard way. Dillian's learning the hard way as well. But we, when you learn the hard way, you learn what works and what doesn't. I promise you that. But Dillian was failed by a lack of good teaching when it came to boxing. 
I know people say, oh, what about Mark Tibbs? And it's too late by then. Mark, Mark's just kind of fixing what went wrong before. That's the truth. Mark's fixing what went wrong before. If Mark had had Dillian from 18 years old, what sort of boxer would he be? Don't know. But more aligned to what Mark Tibbs expects, I imagine. And I think that's the challenge. It's, if you're a boxer right now, ask yourself a very simple and very basic question. Is the guy I call my coach educating me to a point where I could go and coach? If not, he's not giving you the right level of knowledge. I should be giving you what's in my head. A lot of you guys are being failed and you don't even see it. So when your money ends up short, when you start losing fights, now you know why. But crucially, an area I don't think we've ever got right in British boxing is preparing boxers physically. We've never got to grips with this. And if you don't believe me, think about this. Anthony Joshua's been training with Robert McCracken for at least 10 years, right? Same trainer at the EIS, elite level everything. He's had the best of everything for 10 years. And if I said to you, do you trust Anthony Joshua's stamina? Every listener says, no, I don't. That's really strange. If after 10 years, we can't trust the stamina of a professional athlete. If I say to you, Dillian White, five-month training camp in Portugal, do you trust his stamina? Your answer would be like, I'm not sure. He has a history of stamina issues. Okay, that's another red flag. And, and so on and so forth. You can go on in this country. And none of these guys seem to be capable of that 12-round stamina. Although paradoxically, Tyson Fury is capable of that 12-round stamina. And he's the least athletic-looking of the lot of them. The biggest, gangliest, awkwardest-looking guy is the guy who's confident he can do the 12 rounds every time. He'd probably go through to 20 if he had to. And if you don't believe how strong and how resilient the man is, just remember he got up from that Dillian White knockdown in the 12th round and came back to dominate. So where does that come from? And I go back to what I said at the beginning. Look at the greats. A lot of those fighters we consider to be greats were hard workers in their youth. Sharecropping, timber mills, um, even just like, what do they call them? Rag and bone men. Collecting bo Whatever it was, you were working every day. Now, I'm going to go even further back. Anyone who's a parent, you can answer this. Once kids are able to walk and run for themselves, what do they do? Leave a kid to his own devices. Kids pick stuff up. They throw stuff. They run around. They push themselves up. They do all these things. Kids are incredibly physical throughout childhood. And we spend most of our energy as adults telling them to stop being active. We have Ritalin for hyperactive kids. How can you be hyperactive as a kid? That doesn't make any sense. What you don't have is an outlet for your energy. These young kids did. They played with other kids. They played in parks. They did pull-ups on bars. They swung around trees. They did all of these things. And I talked about earlier how they, they program patterns in you. But this is a different discussion. 
What it did is it, it, it equipped their young bodies to cope with high volumes of activity. Their bodies were always moving. They were always subject to stress. So the body learned how to cope with stress and inflammation. So as they grew, these were pretty resilient bodies. I talked to a friend of mine and he's a, he's a PT in the army. Well, in the Marines, really. I don't know what it all means. I always think the Marines are in the army. Don't know. And he was saying the physical capability of modern recruits is like 70% of where it was when he was coming through. So they're, they're not able to do what he was able to do. So he has to train them differently to how he was trained. Because kids don't get beasted at anything anymore. But it's that beasting that helps you. It's that beasting that puts the, the extra blood vessels in the legs, the wider blood vessels, increases your capacity to process blood through your legs, through your abs, all these things that help you recover when you get knocked down. All of those mind-numbing runs they've stopped kids doing because it's cruel. The shuttle runs, having to do 100 push-ups. All these things that kids had to do as punishment that are now considered cruel were the very things that are lacking in British boxing now. We, we don't do enough volume in childhood in terms of physical activity. And so when we enter the sporting realm, we spend a lot of time trying to correct that. We shouldn't be doing hill sprints. Boxing, boxing shouldn't have hill sprints as part of what it does. There's no point. That, this is why people didn't do things like hill sprints. This is why people didn't do things like lift weights. Because they came from backgrounds where they were doing heavy lifting in their day-to-day -day jobs. Whether they were children or adults. And now all of a sudden we're filling these things in with these exercise programs that people don't really understand. They don't. Everyone has a different philosophy. Look, physical preparation is like boxing. There are different languages. I'm a sub-max sub guy. I think sub-max training is amazing. I think it allows you to get the right amount of volume in. And I think in your early career, sub-max training is a godsend and enables you to do a lot more stuff. And I'll give you an example of sub-max training. When I was a student and you'd go down to the Ingle gym, you could head spar one week. You might do three sessions of head sparring one week. And then for about three weeks after, it was just body sparring. Why? Because it was a safer environment to get you that punching volume than always going to the head. But if you were educated the right way, when you went back to head sparring, you went back to your, I mean, you look good technically. And so what that did is it enabled you to get more volume. And more volume is always an advantage. Josh will probably beat Dillian just because he had encountered more volume in the intervening five or so years. And what people don't understand about volume is, it comes back to what I said before, today I'm training for fight number 50. Because in fight number 50, I am not going to be able to do the same amount of work. My body will not let me. This is the time I want to get that in. This is the time I want to get my muscles to adapt. Because I promise you, after 10 or 15 years of hard, brutal boxing training, your counts will be a lot easier after that. Like, you're, I, I break it down because I think a boxing career is about 12 years realistically. First four years, overtrain. I use that word not in the sense of, oh my God, I'm overtraining. That's just a lack of recovery. What I mean by overtraining is do more than you necessarily need to. 
right? Because your first, your first four years, that will take you to probably, what, a British title? Yeah. All manageable fights. So you can do extra. That middle tier of four years, moving from British to kind of world level, then you're doing what you need to do. That last run from world level onwards, you're just trying to maintain what you've got because you're already world level after eight years. So now you're just trying to maintain what you've got. You're not trying to get bigger, stronger, fitter. It's not possible. You're trying to maintain. So you, and your body's rapidly declining. So you do less work in your final four years than you're able to do in your first four years. So this is when you want to bank all your benefits. First four years, you bank everything. And I don't see trainers managing careers like this. You know, trainers are going from camp to camp to camp without that big picture on how you manage a fighter's body over a career. Look at Povetkin. Povetkin's a prime example. He did all his brutal training when he was younger. If you see what Povetkin does now, it's just to maintain. Just get me ready on fight night. And then on fight night, he manages his energy. So he goes, I'm not going to go hell for leather in the first half of the fight. I'm going to up my intensity when they start to get tired. Did it with Huey. Did it with Michael Hunter. Was probably ready to do it with Dillian. From what I've heard from Team Povetkin, they thought they'd stop him around round 10 when the stamina had completely gone. And they were confident of that. That's why they weren't alarmed when he went down a couple of times. And that's what I mean. We don't have that in Britain. We have all these strength and conditioning guys. And I don't see anyone talking about, you need a shitload of volume. As an amateur, right now you're not even fighting. These kids now should be sparring six or seven rounds at a time. I don't, I don't, care, I don't care what anyone says. Six or seven rounds at a time. Yeah, Layer in another six or seven rounds on the bag. And some, and some circuit training for about 15 minutes, right? That's, that's, that feels like roughly enough volume to stimulate. And then if you're doing your runs and you're doing your conditioning work on the outside of that, you're all good because if you're a young amateur, 16, 17, this isn't going to break you. You can't overtrain at that age. Your body's like, give me more. You cannot overtrain at that point. In fact, you cannot overtrain full stop because it's just about what your body can recover from. That's all. And what you find with people who took up boxing late is they can't do the same volume as the guys that took it up early, whether it's runs, whether it's bag work, whether it's pad work. Because your body has to build up a tolerance to a high volume of training. And that's something I learned from Vladimir Klitschko's camp, where Jonathan Banks was saying he was always surprised at how much work a six foot seven, 245 pound man could do until Vlad explained to him when he was growing up, because I think like their families, is it originally Kazakh? I think they might be of like Kazakh roots. But he was just saying, look, when he was growing up, it was all high volume training. He hated it at the time, but he built up that tolerance. So he can do a large amount of training. And ultimately, the amount of training you do over the course of your career determines your success. There's a reason why Mayweather can still train like a monster at 43. Because he put all that work in, all that volume, where his body's conditioned to it now. And I go back to a point that Steve Bunce once made, where he was saying, Carl Frampton used to spar 220 rounds under Shane McGuigan. And under Jamie Moore, they've halved that. And it's no coincidence that Carl's suddenly struggling when he's not doing the same volume that his body 
needs to get to that level where he performs at his best. The ability to manage the physical body is unbelievably important in boxing and very few coaches understand it. When I sit down and talk to the guys I'm close to in the sport and I talk about volume, they are, uh, are you just going to overtrain them, you're going to burn them out. Not true at all. The body recovers remarkably quickly as long as you manage it properly. But the key thing is don't give the body a workload it hasn't done before. And this is what happens generally when you look at how people train. And I'll make it real for you. If you met Ronnie Coleman and Ronnie Coleman gave you his back workout to do, and he's like, do these exercises, this many reps, this many sets with this weight. Even if you could physically hold the weight, you might be able to do that workout once. You're not coming into the gym the next day. Ronnie is. And the day after, and the day after that. You're not. You're at home going, I'm broken. Why? Are you stronger than him? Maybe, maybe not. But what you definitely can't do is cope with his volume. But he spent years from when he was 16 till he was 36 conditioning his body to deal with progressively more volume. And we don't train fighters to do that. We should do. Fighters should be able to deal with progressively more volume as their physical capability increases. So up until about 25, 26. And then that volume should taper down for, for these key reasons. One, this guy's been educated well enough that he's boxing literate. So he's doing more with his brain, less with his body. Two, you're trying to preserve the body now. You know, injury management, you know, because now you're a valuable commodity. We're not trying to see you miss any fights. But the most important one is you need the reserves for the later part of your career. You don't want to start dipping into the overdraft before you need to. I guess, and th this brings me back to the conclusion of why Dillian lost. All Povetkin did was take advantage of the fact that he's been managed properly. That's what he did. He's been managed properly. He's been well-educated. He's been prepared for these sorts of moments from childhood. And Dillian hasn't. Dillian's been prepared for pay-per-view after pay-per-view after pay-per-view. And they've all been seen in isolation. If you ask Dillian now, how are you going to beat Fury? How are you going to beat Wilder? His answer would be, I'll leave it to my team. If you say to Tyson Fury, how would you beat Povetkin or Dillian? He'll tell you in precise detail. Don't fall into the trap when you see Fury of believing that Sugar Hill Stewart made a great deal of difference to him. Don't fall into the trap of believing Andy Lee made a massive difference to him. That's not true. Tyson was so boxing literate. Tyson was so deep in the sport. Tyson is so physically capable from a, a running and a physicality perspective that he could adapt to whatever they gave him. Sugar Hill Stewart could have told Tyson to just be on the inside, lean on Wilder, double hooks to the body, right uppercuts. He could have done that. He could do anything. But he's such a one-off. He might be, him and Billy Joe might be the only guys you could look at with confidence and say, I think you could do a 12-round fight without a corner. I can't say that about anyone else. It's that system. British boxing essentially failed Dillian White. He didn't have the trainers he needed. He didn't have the physical preparation he needed. He didn't have the mental preparation he needed. And he lacked the years of hard training and intense volumes that we all went through as kids. 
that mean that we're decent athletes now. You know, There's a reason why certain people win the Tour de France, and it turns out that they've been cycling since they were young. The volume you need in your legs to cope with 21 days riding the Tour de France, you can't get in adulthood. It's just not possible. And it's the same thing in boxing. To be truly elite and truly great, you can't pick this up in adulthood. You have to have been building stuff and putting stuff in the bank from childhood. You know, Vlad, Vitaly, both kickboxers, but they were both, you know, they both followed a similar path to Povetkin, and that's why they were good. The reason why Vladimir could come out of retirement at, what was it, 40-something, 40 42? And give Joshua hell. Remember, it took him five rounds to warm up. And once he did, it all came back to him. That wasn't his training camp. That was literally Vlad dig, digging into that overdraft and saying, this is for all the years I've been grafting and putting it on the line since I was a kid. So you ask me now, do I think Vladimir could come back and cause havoc now? Absolutely. Why? Because this generation of boxers are not as tough as the previous generation. They're not mentally as tough. They're not boxing literate enough. They can't cope with the training loads and the training volumes that the previous guys could. And all of this is down to the fact that we don't have good trainers in this country. And people will bitch and moan when I say this, but the challenge is either get off the train or get good, man. Because people are taking 10% off boxers and delivering a substandard service. And I think Dillian received... A substandard service. I just do. Because we know what Dillian needs. And Dillian needs a bucket load of training volume away from the fight environment. Like he should never be out of a gym because he's still trying to close that gap. Same with Joshua. Joshua should never be out of a gym because as Tony Bell, you said, they're still learning. So why, why have you got training camps if you're still learning? Just don't leave the gym. Spar any and everyone. You can't have it both ways. But I just wanted to share my, my thoughts on that. Like a lot of this stuff has just been floating around in my mind since the fight and just hearing some of the, the general chit-chat around it. But ultimately, I have a real passion for this, that we don't train British fighters the right way, but we don't train British sports people the right way. And that's why, unless we can throw bucket loads of money at a sport, we're not very good at it. Because we're scared of breaking children, but children are pretty unbreakable. But in, in preventing breaking children, we're now breaking adults because these adults aren't strong enough and they're not resilient enough to cope with what we expect them to be able to cope with. But now, cheers, guys. Please like, share. As always, subscribe to iTunes, subscribe to SoundCloud, Spotify, all that good stuff. It helps with the visibility and the profile of the show. And, you know, keep telling your friends to listen. That's the important thing. You know, don't, don't listen to this in a vacuum. Otherwise, there are no talking points. But thanks very much for listening. Always appreciate it. Take care.